0: Hi, this is Steve Poor and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Let's start with Cat Moon CV. Like many of those changing the industry, it's long and multi-layered. She's a lawyer, she's a lecturer at Vanderbilt, she's a writer and speaker, she's an organizer. And she's today's guest on Pioneers and Pathfinders. Getting to know Kat in conversation revealed to me a depth of creativity that no traditional CV can capture. In a wide-ranging discussion that moves from Kat's role in the radiology department in Vanderbilt, yes, that's right, the radiology department, to the work she's doing with Design Your Delta, get to know more about this self-described curious lawyer and her thoughts on how empathy will change the shape of the profession. I'm here today with Cat Moon, one of the really remarkable commentators on the legal profession, and teacher, and author, and consultant. Cat, uh, it's great to meet you and have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us.
1: It is a true honor to be here to have the opportunity to talk with you. You are a legend, so thank you. Oh,
0: oh, thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> You're embarrassing me right off the bat. Uh, so when I I started preparing for these by by listing out things the person I'm talking to have done, their activities, their actions. And when I did that for you, I've wound up with five pages of things (laughs) and notes. (laughs) And so it's the Summit on Law and Innovation, the Program on Law and Innovation, the Delta Lawyer, the Human-Centered Design, uh, and on and on. And my my first question is, how do you find the time? Do you, you do sleep, right?
1: I actually um, value sleep quite a bit, and so while I'm not always as successful as I would like, I do sleep. Um, I think I, in as I've aged, um, both professionally and just in time, have found ways to connect dots through what I'm doing, so that while it might seem like a lot, the connections between and amongst everything are pretty strong. And so things happen very organically, which in many ways, while it definitely takes a lot of energy and effort, more often than not doesn't really feel like work. And I also am supported by an incredible network of people, like across all of the things that you just mentioned, none of those things are the product of my um, efforts alone, right? So the the collaborations I have with people most certainly fit into all of those things as well. But you know what they say, when you're doing what you love, it doesn't feel like work, right?
0: Uh, that's yeah. absolutely right. <laughs> how, how have you found balancing all of these things during the pandemic? Because we were, were up on sort of a year of, yeah. of living in a different world and that this sort of forced virtual world upon us I think people have a hard time drawing those lines between their personal life and their working life, and one bleeds into the other because we don't have anywhere else to go. How have you found that impacting you and the students and the colleagues that you work with?
1: So, um, you know, I think that impact, frankly, has been pretty profound. I do not think my experience is at all unique um, when I just – you know, jump on Twitter and see how people are doing, you know, this has been an incredibly challenging time. And I think all of us have really struggled with the ability to create boundaries between work and the rest of our lives that certainly felt easier for most of us, I think, in the before times. I mean, I'm sitting to you, you can see me because we're on video, but I'm I'm sitting underneath A um, suspended staircase in the front entrance of my home that before was just an empty space and um, was the only place I could put a desk and basically create an office. So I'm kind of in this little Harry Potter ish little spot (laughs) (laughs) in my office. And it's been, I'm really fortunate that I had the place to put a desk. By the way, it's my desk that I kept from my law office. And when I closed my office, in 2018, after I had started um, teaching at Vanderbilt Law School, I told my husband, I don't, I don't want to give up my desk and my chair. Like there were a few pieces of furniture that I'm just like, I, you know, I'm probably never going to have an office again that will require this, but I'm going to keep it. And lo and behold, pandemic, like, ha, I have a desk.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. You knew what you were doing, you know? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And so who knew? That was definitely not on my bingo card. But, um I, you know, been able to carve out this space. It's been fantastic because I literally walk down the stairs from my bedroom in the morning, grab my my cup of coffee and can sit down and and commence work and it's way too easy, right? For me mm-hmm. to just wander through and say, "Oh, I'll pop down and check email or, you know, work on that paper or that presentation." And so when I get my daily briefings from Office 365 about my screen time and everything, that's a, you know, a real wake up call. Like, I don't think that's such a good idea. So, um, it's, it's definitely been a challenge and I'm a champion of creating boundaries and I try to walk the walk and it's still damn hard right now. Um, it really is.
0: How have your students handled uh, moving? Yeah. I, I assume Vanderbilt's been mostly virtual for the last year, I I saw you discussing sort of this instantaneous change, almost instantaneous, where you had, I think I heard you say, a week to move to a virtual environment. That had to be a shock, not just to the professors and lecturers, but to the students. How have they adapted and handled it? And sort of what sort of support do do you and the university give them in, in changing to a different environment?
1: Our students are so incredibly resilient, and I think have risen to this challenge in a way that is just a, a testament to their awesomeness. Uh, they certainly have been incredibly supportive and inspirational for me. Um, you know, because we're going through this together, right? So we're trying mm-hmm. to figure out how to make things, these things work. None of us have had to do this before. You know, Vanderbilt, like most law schools, is a fully in-person delivered curriculum and so you know the literally overnight jump to this virtual environment so we ended last semester the spring 2020 semester fully online as I, as i believe all law schools did and i think that was a feeling of okay we're just going to get through this we're going to do the best we can and i just doubled down on focusing on my students as as humans as people and so a lot of my effort and attention and energy was, of course, I wanted to continue to deliver my content. I was teaching legal operations. And um, actually, there were a lot of opportunities to build into the curriculum on the fly um, issues that we were currently grappling with because of the nature of the course I was teaching. So that was pretty cool. And at the same time, You know, I had students who were had family members who were sick with COVID, and Mm -hmm. had you know a number of personal challenges created by the pandemic. And first and foremost was me supporting my students as as humans and as people in that we're going through this challenging time together. And so we made it through. Um, (laughs) That's about (laughs) the the best we could look at for the spring of twenty twenty. So Vanderbilt has maintained. Um, a pretty robust policy of offering courses in person and virtually so a dual modality so any student who wishes to attend in person the you know all the classrooms are being reconfigured to accommodate students who want to physically be in the building and so, a lot of my teaching has been in this dual modality. So I've been in a classroom in a mask behind a plexiglass with cameras and mics in the room, and I'll have a few students in the room with me, and then everyone else is in Zoom. And, you know, that has, frankly, tremendous challenges. I have no regrets at all that, that I've been able to deliver content that way and to interact with students and engage specifically for those students the in-person experience is just incredibly important and meaningful, and it is really hard to deliver good to everyone when it's kind of, you're having to to make accommodations for both modalities, which I think, you know, make the experience not great for anyone. Um, so right. Right. that is just a constant learning experience. I mean, I try... To do new and better every single time I teach each week. I teach two courses a week, so I'm teaching about four hours a week. And just yesterday in my leading in the law class, I tried some new stuff and I bungled something. And my very kind <laughs> and <laughs> empathetic students were patient and let me work through it. And so I, you know, I try things. I ask for student feedback. Um, so I teach that course with. Dean Chris Guthrie, our, the dean of Vanderbilt Law School, and we, you know, spent time meeting individually with the, the students and teams of four just to get a sense of how they're doing, what their needs are, how are their classmates, and that just being able to listen, ask questions and listen, and, you know, do what we can to make the entire experience better for everyone, I think has been a primary goal. In um, Vanderbilt, You know, from the dean down, Vanderbilt, I think, is an institution, and not just the law school, but the entire institution has been, you know, just hyper-focused on how can we give everyone involved the resources they need to do the best they can through this experience, because as an institution, again, not just the law school, but as an institution, Vanderbilt is built on the in-person delivery model, right? So there wasn't a deep bench of experience with delivering online content, right. Um, right. and, and I, I don't think that's unique at all to Vanderbilt, and I think we all have done our best to rise to the challenge, and I've learned a whole lot. About myself and my students, and that I'm certain will persist and inform what I do as we come out of this. And I can't wait to be back in a classroom with my students without masks
0: in class. Well, I'll bet, and let's let's hope we get there by the time you start in the fall. Uh, Yeah, maybe maybe even before that, but I wouldn't hold out for that. What are those one or two things you've learned that you think will be sticky in terms of? of how you approach teaching or advising, or whether it's executive education or law students?
1: One big takeaway for me is really leaning into what feels very authentic for me already. And I don't know that it's a standard across higher education specifically, but really leaning into we are a group of humans going through this together So um, embracing our humanity and the personal aspects of our interaction so that we can create a strong sense of trust in the classroom, whether it's a virtual classroom or an in-person classroom. I believe from the start in my teaching, so I started teaching just one course in the fall of 2017 at Vanderbilt that I prioritized. Getting to know my students and making the classroom a safe space, and really focusing on the importance of the human elements of our interaction. And living through this past year uh, with all the challenges we've faced on various levels has really just confirmed for me the power and importance of that, even if we're not all going through a, you know, global tragedy, disaster, uh, whatever you call the pandemic. And so I think, really, it's, I feel like it's given me permission to do what has always been important to me. I felt maybe wasn't typical. And so that made me very hesitant to go all in the way I feel that the pandemic has demanded And I think that's because that's how we should operate all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So, um, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm getting feedback from students. So I do just random Google surveys to check in. And of course we get course evaluations and, you know, the primary takeaway from my course evaluation from last fall, which was 140 students in a course called Law as a Business, the largest class at Vanderbilt Law School. It was not supposed to be 140 students, and we did it um, <laughs> <laughs> together. Um, but the overwhelming takeaway from the feedback I got throughout the course was how important um, that human connection and just the sense that I cared about the experience they're having, and not just through the pandemic, but also the experience they're having in the course. and. So, that constant, you know, checking in and really that conversation was noteworthy Mm -hmm. to the students and really resonated with them. And so, you know, leaning into that, I think that in academia, we feel this sense of formality, and there is a sense that I am the teacher, you are my students, and there should be um, the word formality just keeps coming to mind. And most certainly, there are you know, ways in which we should operate and not in the classroom setting. And, and I think I'm just convinced now more than ever that when we can really get to know each other and bring into the classroom our whole persons and whether that's in Zoom and the baby, Crying behind you, or the cat crawling over your head, or the dog barking, or for me, my you know teenager slinking past with his backpack on. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I, I think I just want to find ways going forward and normalizing that, and making us all you know feel comfortable showing up fully who we are.
0: I think that's a great observation. I mean, lawyers, the profession's not known for being the most empathetic. Of people, and yet this is a moment that calls for empathy more than any I've, I've experienced in my lifetime. And yes. I know when I talk to less senior lawyers, just to try to help share thoughts with them, one of the pieces of advice I've given them is exactly what you're talking about, which is see your clients and see your colleagues as people, and understand yes. they're going they're going through a, a terrifying time, just like you are. And don't always make it about the business. Make it about who they are. Uh, your observation of seeing your teenager slink through with his backpack or the cat. I mean, <laughs> we have this moment, right, That would where we have a chance to make this personal connection because we are seeing people in environments we would not otherwise yes. have seen them in through Zoom calls. One of the themes, I'm going to change the subject a little bit and talk about the Department of Radiology. <laughs> <laughs> at, at, at Vanderbilt. yeah. yeah. And, and the reason I bring it up, and I, I, I kid a little bit, but one of the themes I see in your work is this cross-disciplinary collaboration and work across not just people with different specialties or interests as lawyers, but different professions, whether it's legal operations, whether it's technologists, whether it's... You name the profession, and I have a personal belief that those that can exist in a multidisciplinary world are going to have a tremendous advantage. You know, this operating lawyers is a silo, yes. and the profession is a is a bad event. So the Department of Radiology sort of stood out to me in looking at some of your things, and I don't want to blow it out of proportion. But I thought it was interesting that here's a what I would think of as as a fairly confined skill set. Now, I don't know any, I don't know, I know one radiologist in my life that so I don't profess to be an expert <laughs> on it, but they seem to have embraced this concept of learning from other professions. And I'm curious to sort of how that evolved and how that fits into your, uh, the gestalt of what you're doing.
1: Yes. So um, thank you for asking about it because it really is one of the joys of the many opportunities I have at Vanderbilt um, to connect, collaborate, and develop professionally. And so I'm going to talk a little bit on a macro and a micro level about it. Mm -hmm. So the macro level, I think if we, well, let me back up. I am very big on looking around to see how other people have solved problems like the ones we face, right? And it's actually a core element of effective decision making, um, which by the way, is the topic I've been teaching my leading and law students recently. so I'm a little obsessed with <laughs> with <those laughs> for decision making right now. Um, and so if you know, we recognize we face a lot of really substantial challenges in the legal profession kind of across a wide spectrum. And so if we look around and see how have people kind of similarly situated with similar challenges face these, Radiology as a discipline has had to come to grips with the fact that technology is rapidly encroaching on um, kind of the daily bread and butter of many radiologists. At least theoretically, moving quickly into from a practical perspective. And so, as as again a discipline, the folks who are wanting to evolve rather than cling to a model that is disappearing. I have embraced human-centered design to say, okay, we have these unique skills. How can we leverage them to continue to provide value to people? So if there are certain things that machines are going to be able to do better, then let's embrace that, to use that as a superpower, and let's figure out what our superpower as human radiologists are. The chair of the department at Vanderbilt, Reed Omri, is one of those folks who has just embraced this mindset. So this is kind of the macro level for the discipline itself. Mm -hmm. And um, he has gone all in. And so he has had everyone who works on his team get trained in human centered design and they've been just really keenly focused on innovation and you know, in some respects it's a survival, it's a necessity for survival mm-hmm. and you know, they come at it from a place we have value to provide. Let's figure out what that looks like in the 21st century, because it's not what it has looked like. And guess what? It's really exciting and fun and a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot more fun than just doing the same old thing for the next 100 years. Mm-hmm. So that mindset, you know, so this is kind of the macro level like this, these are the people in my institution doing these amazing things and so we connected through a mutual colleague and, and we're like ah oh, we we are trying to do the same thing in two different places and we realized that there are so many commonalities between the challenges we face the largest one being bringing people along with us. Right. And so <laughs> the other stuff mm-hmm. is actually kind of easy. <laughs> <but> it's <laughs> the people who are hard. And uh, so, don't I know that? <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Um, yeah. I would love just to sit and um, listen to your stories. Actually, I'm certain that that could go on for hours and I would just be absolutely enthralled. Um, so maybe next time I can interview you. But back to read. Uh, he So he and I connected, and then he just started finding ways to bring me into some of the things they're working on. And the, the biggest contribution I make is in the program um, Medical Innovators Development Program, MIDP. So it's a program in which the School of Medicine funds two to three medical students who have a PhD in a different discipline and they come to Vanderbilt for the purpose of going through the standard uh, medical education experience, but they have an add-on that is an in innovation and human-centered design with the goal being that they will become doctors who may practice, but their primary mission is to actually innovate the delivery of, le- of medical services. And it's not oriented just towards radiology, by the way. The students choose various disciplines. As they go out into the world, but Reed has developed and leads this program, and so I'm on the admissions committee and and help offer you know advice from a different perspective, right? I come from a dis- different discipline, and so when I sit in these meetings, it's very interesting, and it's and it's not all um, medically trained people. There are I'm not the only non medically trained person around the table, and it's just so interesting because we do bring this real breadth of. Perspective, right? And it is just an example of of how the multidisciplinary collaboration can work so beautifully. And, and, so it's just, it's, as I said, it's an absolute joy to be involved in that process. And not only that, but I just get to hang out with like these incredibly interesting, incredibly intelligent people and have really amazing conversations. And so I'm really lucky.
0: That's fabulous. What, what have you taken back from this experience that you've applied in your work with Polly or your human-centered design? And, and at some point you might want to tell our listeners what you mean by human-centered uh, design. but but what have you learned? What have you applied?
1: So um, I've blatantly stolen some ideas from what Reed is doing with his medical students. And so I'm, you know, in the process of developing some opportunities for our students to enrich their overall law school experience, but also to enrich what we do in the program on law and innovation. So one thing Reed does incredibly well is create opportunities for students to plug in and really get this multidisciplinary experience and any he, he does it really by tapping for example resources around Vanderbilt that's how he and I got connected and so just looking around who around me has something to offer to my students it might not be obvious but there are some clear connections and so he really i think the biggest takeaway for me is just Reed's been a great model for behavior of someone leading innovation In a space that is still uncertain about embracing Mm -hmm. that. Right. So I think that's one of the biggest takeaways and and validation. Really, I have experienced the benefits of multidisciplinary collaboration and having him model it effectively in higher education has been just really incredibly valuable. And frankly, it also gives me something to point to when I'm trying to explain, here's what I want to accomplish. I can point to something Reed's doing and like, it's like what he's doing over here. That's, uh, you know, the value of having a concrete example cannot overstated. And also no one wants to be first, right? It's great to have someone who goes ahead of you and you can kind of follow in their footsteps and, you know, right. benefit from yeah. their bravery.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. There's some advantages to being first mover, but there's a lot of advantages to being the second mover. Uh, yep. as well absolutely you've mentioned human centered design a few yes. times and not all of the people listening may know quite what you mean by that what t- tell us what your definition is and how that applies in the work you're doing
1: so i think we can talk again kind of macro and micro from a, a macro perspective for me human centered design requires us to approach our work from the perspective of those who we are serving and so often in law, we hear folks talk about client centricity and client centered services and, and so forth. That is most certainly an element. The nexus of stakeholders served by any service delivery or project or you name it is much richer than just a single avatar called a client. And so um i really approach it from how do we design whatever this is service product to meet the needs of the group of people who we are serving and so specifically in the law i i teach for called legal problem solving which is in essence a course in how we use human centered design to do things better in the law and I come from the perspective that when we're designing how we do our work, the people doing the work are part of the stakeholder group that we're designing for. And so that's why I tend to avoid using client-centered solely clients clearly are a primary stakeholder and we can and must do much better bringing them into the process of how we serve them and we are we are one of those stakeholders as well and i point that out because my mission broadly is to make law better and for me personally someone who practiced law for nearly 20 years before starting to teach full time I'm a fifth generation lawyer. For me, the commitment to making this better for the people doing the work is super important. And Mm -hmm. so while we must, again, do better in putting our clients at the center as a stakeholder, we have to do this in a way that also serves us better, because I think we are missing that mark if you just look at For instance, the statistics on the the lack of well-being in the legal profession, right? The rates Mm -hmm. of depression and anxiety and alcoholism and suicide, frankly. Um, I saw on Twitter a tweet just a couple of days ago that five attorneys in the state of Kentucky have committed suicide since the beginning of the pandemic. I haven't verified exactly that number, but it led to a conversation about Mm -hmm. right how we— We've got to figure out how to do things better for those of us who are in this profession and doing the work. So back to the macro view of human centered design, it's really how do we put the people who are at the center of the work at the center of the work as we're figuring out how we do it better and better. And for me, this is primarily about mindsets. Like there are a lot of ways you can do that. There are all kinds of tools and methods you can apply, you know, a three, five or seven phase design thinking method. Right. Mm -hmm. You can um, use a double diamond method like there's there are all kinds of tools out there um, that can be very valuable in specific situations. And if you don't start with the fundamental mindsets in place, you're not going to get to the best result you can get, regardless of whatever tool that you're using. So for me, it really comes down to how do we reframe the mindset so that we're coming from this place of being able to do work in a truly human centric way. And for me, some of those mindsets, clearly empathy, intellectual curiosity, radical collaboration. And, and I, and I continue to use the phrase radical collaboration, even when people make faces, when I say it in the law. Um, For two reasons. One, radical in that we do need to cross pollinate who is collaborating, right? We simply are never going to get the best result if the only people around the table are a bunch of lawyers who were trained to think and problem solve in exactly the same way. We just won't. I don't care how smart this group of people is because we are all trained exactly the same way. And the, one right. of the true values of radical collaboration, one, not the only one, is bringing a group of people together who have been trained in disciplines that problem solve differently. Like there's incredible value to that. Not only bringing together people who simply have different life experiences, that's another valuable point of radical collaboration. So collaboration in law in and of itself is often radical. We are like a very siloed species. Uh, we have been proclaimed as the loneliest profession. Why is that? Because we work often in our own individual silo, even we are, when we're technically part of a team working on a matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the opportunities there are just tremendous. So radical collaboration is, you know, a fundamental mindset. Um, another fundamental mindset is embracing ambiguity which. We've had such an opportunity for practice. In, <laughs> over yes, the we past have, years.
0: haven't we? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so maybe some of us have, have opened up to um, developing those skills. You know, I could keep going, but for me, this has been like this has been my lived experience. I started working in the ways of human centered design more than 10 years ago because I was exposed to these ways through clients who worked in creative industries. And so I, they, I started learning about these things. And I thought, this, this is the way. And this makes so much sense. And when I started reframing how I work using these mindsets and then some actual tools and methods, it fundamentally changed everything about my experience as a lawyer professionally. And most certainly changed to the better, and most certainly changed my relationship and my ability to serve clients to the better. And so it's my lived experience. And now, you know, there's a lot of data. Most other industries have fundamentally embraced it. And and there's data showing that those organizations that embrace human centered design as a value set around which they make business decisions are significantly more financially successful mm-hmm. than those who do not. Right. So it's not just like, oh, this makes people feel better, or I'm going to be more quote satisfied as a lawyer, like your bottom line improves. <laughs> and so, <laughs> um, so for me, uh, you know, the opportunity to start by crafting this class at Vanderbilt that exposes students to the mindsets as well as some methods And then we get busy just applying these things, you know, in um, opportunities and projects, working with real clients to help them improve the delivery of legal services specifically. That's often what our project is, but not always. And, you know, and I will say that there are a whole lot of ways that you can kind of slice and dice, and this gets down to sort of from the macro perspective, what does human-centered design look like from a, in the legal profession? You know, the phrase legal design is another example, right? So I think most commonly understood to refer to how can we use the principles of designing effective documents and products and those kinds of things to improve access to legal information and understanding and to improve how we serve clients. So so many places to plug in there. I could have like a 45 year conversation about all of that. And it would be (laughs) fascinating. And it would be fascinating.
0: So you, you've, you've taught this, these concepts now for, for a few years at Vanderbilt. And so you've, you've released some of your students out into the wild at this point, I presume. Yes. And. Have you gotten any feedback for how they've used how they've real world yes. applications for your students? How they how it's helped them succeed? And if so, maybe you could give us a couple of examples. I, of...
1: I will start with the most recent example. It's just really an amazing story. So my in the legal problem solving course, we start from the foundation of self awareness because self awareness must precede true empathy and. So we start by building self-awareness just as a as a group of people who've come together, you know, for this learning experience. And we start also by applying some of the human centered design methods to the students own professional experience. So they think about um, their journey. Right. They kind of do a journey map. What is this? What is my journey through the legal profession going to look like? And it's so fascinating because without fail. There will be a handful of students who have epiphanies. And so Mm -hmm. I hear stories that, you know, one, one woman came to me and she said, you know, I thought something was wrong with me because I keep going on these interviews with these big law firms and it just never goes well for me. And I might even get an offer, but like, it's not like it, I feel like I'm failing at this. Mm-hmm. And so she reveals that through this discovery process we did in class, she figured out her path, which is a different path. And she said, I never felt like I had permission <laughs> to walk a different path. Oh, isn't that and, interesting? Oh, that floored me, just floored me. So I give the students the opportunity to be really self-reflective and intentional about how they choose to proceed, whether it's how they pick their courses in law school and how they pick their first job and what that looks like. So a student from that class emailed me within the past year and he said, you know, I know from your classes what this life at this big New York law firm I'm at was going to be like, like I I understood what the reality was going to be. He said, What I could not understand until I'm in it was just how bad it was going (laughs) to be. And it's true, right? Like, so you absent context, often you can't fully appreciate what someone's telling you, right? And then suddenly you're living in the context and you're like, Holy cow. Okay. So. He wrote me and he said, "So I've gone back to what you taught us in in legal problem solving, and I'm going through a discovery process right now. I'm trying, I'm, I'm finding these tools, I'm using them, and I'm thinking about how am I going to create the path for me to thrive." Like he's using these words, and That's fabulous,
0: <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> and he said, and so here's what I'm thinking, and I just want to bounce some ideas off of you because I I am committed. He said, it may take me the rest of my life to pay off my law school loans, but he said, I'm, I'm going to do different, and I'm going to create the path that I'm supposed to walk, and it is not this. And he has just in the past month accepted a position at a different firm that is the path he wants to walk. He figured out this is the kind of work I'm going to, I want to be doing. Another thing that we try to teach in the program on law and innovation, and my colleague J.B. Rule, who teaches a class called Law 2050, is really phenomenal at this as well. We try to really encourage the students to think about what's your differentiating factor, like find something that you really are super interested in and curious about, and then figure out can you leverage that as your differentiating factor in your practice? And so this particular student did. He picked an area of technology. He said, "No one's doing anything with this. I'm fascinated by this." He signed up for a course at an online course at MIT. And so I don't know when this person slept. Honest, clearly, because he's working—you know—70 hours a week in a law firm. He basically is—you right. know—you know—an early associate has two full-time jobs in the same time. Yes, I, I do know that.
0: <laughs> so,
1: but he took this course, and he said you know, I took this and I'm learning more about it and I'm even more interested in it. He said, I'm going to be the go-to guy for this. And he found the place that wants to help him develop into the go-to guy for that. And so I think he just really exemplifies, you know, a young lawyer who got it, and once he was in the place that gave him the opportunity to execute these mindsets of curiosity and definitely embracing ambiguity, right? There's a whole mm-hmm. lot unknown about the path that he's trying to walk, his walk, and, and he is going for it. And he feels, he feels like he has the skills he needs and he feels empowered to do that.
0: That has to be great validation for you in terms of that type of feedback and making that type of impact on a young person's life. It has to really reinforce what you're doing.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Talk to us in a in little bit of time we have left. One of, one of the corollary things you're working on, of course, is the Delta model for lawyers. And for those that want to learn more about it, it's designyourdelta.com. Yes, uh, where you'll find all kinds of really interesting stuff on there. But one, as you talk about human-centered design, I was sort of struck by one of the foundational elements is this delta concept you have where you're coupling process and people and the practice as sort of the linchpins. It strikes me as one of the foundational components for how people execute on some of these other skills. You're teaching them, but maybe I've got that wrong. Maybe you could just talk to us a little bit about the delta model.
1: Yeah, I would love to. So, I I was fortunate to be brought into a group of people who conceived of the Delta model for lawyer competency at a design sprint held at MSU Law a few years ago now. And I was actually not part of the original design sprint. So, I want to clarify I didn't give birth to the idea, but my colleague, Allison Carroll, who was part of the original team who teaches at Northwestern, she's a clinical professor at Northwestern, Mm -hmm. she and I. Just see incredible power and value in the Delta model. And so we together agreed to keep working and iterating and developing um, what we hope will be a fairly robust set of tools around it. And the, the fundamental premise is very simple how can we create a way to clearly describe and understand a more holistic view and framework for the various fairly granular skills that 21st century lawyering requires. Mm -hmm. And we simply, and that's that was the impetus for the delta, the, the sides of the triangle in the design sprint. And so I will say as a kind of a preliminary point, our goal is less to say these are the skills to focus on and more to say these are the areas in which the skills fall. And the particular skills so there's not one single universal delta model that describes the skills every lawyer should have i want to make that very clear the goal is to give folks a way to think about their particular role and orient around the three sides of the delta which you referenced the practice which that's the foundation and we would consider those the thinking like a lawyer skills Mm -hmm. right then the right hand side of the delta process. So these we would think of these as kind of the modern technologically oriented skills. So technology fluency and proficiency, project management, data analysis, those kinds of things. And I think also many of the kind of process parts of human centered design, design thinking fall on that side as well. And then the other side, the left-hand side, people. So those skills that are are unique human skills which frankly are critical to good lawyering. And um, often in the research, those skills surface much higher than the practice skills and the process skills. So the goal is to really force people to think holistically, like I've got to be paying attention to all three sides when I think about my professional growth and advancement. And I will say really quickly, too, from my perspective as a teacher, it also provides a lens, a way for students to look at a role that they think they're interested in. And if they plot it on the Delta and say, okay, what does this particular role require? How does that match up with my expectations for my professional work or my professional growth and development. And I can tell you I've had students who've done that because first I ask the students to gain self-awareness and figure out what are your strengths? What are your interests? How do you want to be spending your time?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> right? And then let's look at what that role requires and then figure out where your deficits is are there skills on competencies on this delta map? that you look at and think i just don't want to do those things like that's not something i want to spend my time developing and so really that awareness of fit right because so much of this is such a black box our students have you know rarely any direct experience of what it's like to be an associate in a corporate law firm and i'm not so sure that law firms do a good job of you know sharing that information even once folks are there and so the other I think real value is creating transparency. And so we um, are starting to work with some law firms to develop the firm's kind of set of deltas so that there is this very clear visual model for, okay, if you want to progress along this path in this firm here kind of is, is what that trajectory looks like. Um, these are the skills we're gonna expect you to have and to focus on. And finally, I think this is incredibly important because I think this is a fundamental way that our current model for professional development in the legal profession is failing. And that is relying primarily on the CLE model to deliver continuing education that focuses primarily on the practice, like the base, the thinking like a lawyer, doctrinal, and related skills we must start focusing more on these to learn and grow in those areas that fall on the process and the people side. And we need to value those learning opportunities the same as we value the opportunity to learn about updates in whatever area of law that you're in. And we simply don't consistently in the profession. And so one of our hopes is by creating the delta that gives Equal square footage, right? Each side of it mm-hmm. it's an equilateral triangle. The practice isn't more important than the process and the people. It takes it all. We hope that this gives people a way to understand and talk about and really value more appropriately the full set of skills that we need to be developing. And I feel certain you would agree with me that learning is a continual process for lawyers. And we've got to find a way to really keep doing that in a more holistic way. And so we hope that the Delta model provides some impetus for that, some inspiration for that, and a way to do that.
0: Yeah, I, I agree 100% with everything you're doing and, and what you just said, because I think this focus on the practice and the skills associated with learning a specific code provision or evidence rule or whatever it may be, operates to the exclusion of the need to have some thought around the other aspects of your professional life to give people the tools. As you described, the young lawyer who was finding a different path gives him a tool set. And I think, mm-hmm. I think not enough lawyers have that tool set. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well, Kat, thank you so much for the time. Let's get a few things out there for folks. If they want to learn more about you, they can go to a acuriouslawyer.com, which is a fabulous title for a website. Uh, I think we already mentioned designingyourdelta.com. Designyourdelta.com,
1: Delta. Design yes.
0: Designyourdelta. Designyourdelta.com.
1: Yeah, no, no, good.
0: We'll, we'll put that in the show notes as well. Anything else you want to have our folks refer to?
1: So um, I do have a website for my human-centered design course called legalproblemsolving.org. And I have resources listed there for anyone who's curious about how human-centered design can help us make law better. So I invite people to check out those resources.
0: That's great. And I I think you should check out all of them because you'll find fascinating stuff on every one of the things that Kat puts up. Kath, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, keep up the good work.
1: Thank you, Steve. This has been fantastic. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.